Welcome to Bad Reads, a podcast about reading, the experience of being a reader, and reading culture, with your hosts, Simon and Kira. You're joining us for our first episode, where we address the age-old question, are you a good reader? Akira, are you a good reader? I'm so glad you asked, Simon. No, I am a bad reader. How about you? (laughs) Sometimes I think I might be a good reader on my best days, but more often I think I'm probably a bad reader as well. Although we should take a moment here and actually say what it means to be a good or a bad reader. Yeah, there's a super pervasive idea of what it means to be a good reader, and that's handed down to you by parents or teachers or yourself, and often it just puts pressure on people, removes the joy of reading. So I really wanted to dig into that idea and to embrace some of the bad reading habits that actually make the practice a lot more enjoyable. When I'm not meeting my own standards that make me a good reader, I'm filled with guilt. The one that I get is abandoning books. So once I start a book, I feel compelled to read it all the way through. Even if I'm skipping over whole pages and nothing's going in, I will plug my way through relentlessly to the end. Put it aside, so I've read that, couldn't tell you a word of what it was about, at least I finished it. <laughs> yeah, so I think we both came across this, um, you know, that Dungeons and Dragons lawful, neutral, chaotic grid of which there have been multiple different memes going around recently. And there's one about being a reader. <laughs> And uh, I think the categories are all based on how many books you have on the go at one time. And I think it's like three plus or four plus, And that puts you, what's the horizontal part of the grid? So along one side, it's lawful, neutral and chaotic, isn't it? And yeah. on that axis, it's how many books you're reading. So if you're reading one book, you're lawful. And if you're reading four, you're, you're chaotic. Yes. Oh, yeah. And then it's between good and evil on the other axis. And so if you're at the good end, then you could have, you could be chaotic but good, which means you've got like four books on the go, but you finish them all. And then chaotic evil is you've got four books on the go, but you finish. You abandon them all. Or less than <laughs> half. Yeah. <laughs> and I looked at this and I was like, uh, I wasn't quite chaotic evil, but I'm getting there. Are you, are you neutral evil? You've got multiple on the go and you finish some of them. I'm neutral evil. Yeah. <laughs> That's pretty harsh, right? Not even a bad reader, an evil one. I think this is the one time that I've looked at one of these grids and been lawful good, actually. This is the one thing I hold myself to, is one book at a time and you must finish it. But I get nothing from it, right? Like, I hold myself to this standard. And I gain nothing from it at all. Yeah, that's exactly it. I'll sit and go all the way through a book. And there's an opportunity cost as well, because while I'm slogging through this book that I'm not enjoying at all, it kind of puts me off reading at all. When I think to myself, I could do some reading. And then I remember what's in store for me, this book that I'm (laughs) not taking any pleasure from at all. And I think, now you know what, I'm going to go on Twitter instead. (laughs) Yeah, it's when the reading turns from a could into a should. My best and worst reading habit is lawful in one sense, but it's not a good way of reading, even if it pretends to be. Yeah, and that's just what's really interesting is like, I think it's fine setting reading goals for yourself or having an understanding of what kind of reading you enjoy. That's great. But the idea of being a good or a bad reader so often fits into ideals that other people set out for you. It's externally imposed and it can hold you back. 
do you think the type of books you read make you a good or a bad reader as well? Yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? This idea of reading highbrow or lowbrow or reading guilty pleasures. A lot of that can be externally imposed again. Some of the things that you consider that you feel guilty about or that you consider to be junk or frothy or light or any of these other descriptions. I don't think there's anything problematic in what you actually enjoy reading. For me, it comes in where what I'm reading actually isn't making me that happy, but I've kind of got into a rhythm with it or... I'm using it as escapism and it's actually taking me away from doing other things in my life that I should be doing or maybe from engaging with things that are a bit more critical. There's a self-care thing that comes in there of knowing what you actually need and when it's time to push yourself a bit more. I've never got into the habit actually of reading thrillers say as an example of something that some people might consider trashy I suppose. I remember years ago reading The Da Vinci Code because everyone seemed to be reading it, and I didn't enjoy it at all. Like, there was something about it pretending to be a film, I felt almost like it was almost written as if it was going to be filmed. <laughs> and I just got nothing from it. Whereas I, and I actually quite like a trashy film, a film with a car chase and a big explosion, and I'm away. A book that describes a car chase and a big explosion does very little for me. I don't find myself getting anything from that escapism. Instead, I find myself switching off and becoming quite bored with it. Yeah, I think that's fair enough. Different books kind of work with different people's imaginations, don't they? How well you visualise things, how much description you tend to need or like in a book, I think will vary massively. And so a lot of those books, they really set it out for you. Like they try and overpaint the picture, maybe, if you're already quite an imaginative person. And that can be exhausting rather than enjoyable. Whereas if you don't tend to imagine things, then it's quite, probably quite nice to have that. Painted for you. Mm. I find another vector that I catch myself out on is I'm, I maybe I'm reading a magazine article and I sometimes don't classify that as reading, even though it is reading. I'm like, this isn't a book. This isn't proper stuff. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you're not going to log it anywhere, are you? For the most part. You don't give yourself any credit for it. I'm not going to mark it on Goodreads, am I? <laughs> Favourite articles read this year. <laughs> well, having said that, I signed up for Pocket a while back, which is this web service that lets you save interesting articles to it. I guess like all modern technology, it scans and profiles you and then it sends you emails of articles it thinks you might want to read. But at the end of the year, it's remembered everything you've read and it tells you how many articles you read and how many words you read. Wow. So it does. It's giving, trying to give you the credit for that. Yeah, it gives you the score at the end of the year. I instinctively hadn't. And I think because for a lot of people reading articles usually they think of as reading the news and for them it's something that's like a compulsion that they feel they should be doing to be a sort of good informed citizen rather than something that they're doing for enjoyment or they do it in a kind of doom scrolling way that they do feel really bad about yeah it's something about the way it comes to us as well i think because it's often via twitter which of course is itself an interesting thought because when I start thinking about what, what even reading is, when I'm scrolling through Twitter, those are words that I'm reading. Yeah. <laughs> like, why does go through Twitter not count as reading? Yeah. What do you get from it? I guess that's the question. Well, yes, this is the thing, isn't it? When we talk about reading mainly, I suppose, we're thinking about books. Even if that book ends up being a collection of articles that are in a magazine, yeah. or even, maybe I'm pushing it now, a book that's a collection of tweets. <laughs> 
And I guess we normally are also meaning fiction when we talk about reading. Often nonfiction gets slightly pushed to the side. It's a different kind of reading, perhaps, that we engage in when we read nonfiction versus fiction. But I think to the point about Twitter, maybe some of it comes down to the quality and how much it's written for us versus for the other person. I do follow a couple of accounts on Twitter that are really nicely narrative. There's one where she observes overheard conversations and it's lovely because it's like reading dialogue and you notice it as you scroll. It's a real point of difference and it's a pause. It often makes me feel very positive. So it definitely does feel like a completely different reading experience. Yeah, I noticed perhaps something about the craft of, of writing, that it's writing as an, as an artistic act rather than writing as a sort of transactional yeah. activity. Because really, if I think about my day-to-day work, I spend a lot of time reading emails, and I do not count <laughs> that as reading. <laughs> That's a good definition, then, the transactional nature versus something which is crafted for enjoyment or edification or motivation something i guess with a high, slightly higher aim even if that so-called high aim is entertainment i have a um i have another question for you actually about about defining reading and i was hope to say that we're very pro-reading and non-judgmental um even if we're beginning this by <laughs> saying a load of what we don't consider proper reading we uh, i genuinely think that any words that you read are better than yeah. no words that you read as much as consuming the news all the time is problematic, I think it's much better to be reading it in words than it is to be watching it on the news. Yeah, I agree with that. I think part of that is maybe because you can still, to a certain degree, control pace at which you're exposed to it. And if you're watching the TV news, you're really beholden to their programming and can't skip over a story that you find really depressing. That's a really interesting point, actually, and it reminds me of an eye-tracking study that I saw a while back. In my day job, when I'm not reading and answering emails, I work in software development. And one thing that happens in the industry is there's a lot of research done into how people use software applications. And there's a branch of research, I think started by a a user experience expert called Jacob Nielsen. And he gets people to use websites and he has some equipment which monitors their pupils and their eyes. Generally, when people are browsing online, their eyes go in an F-shape pattern. And that is that they flick from left to right, as in they're going down a sentence, and then they skim vertically. They just read the first line of every sentence until they catch another one that interests them, and then they flick left to right again. And I wonder if the difference between browsing the internet and this sort of transactional reading, if you call it that, is actually to do with the way that you engage with the words and you're skimming and scanning and trying to catch what you want. Whereas when I read a book... I read every line in that book. Yeah. it's Actually, it's a really interesting point thinking about articles. And there, I mean, we just talk about them in one category, but there's a huge difference, isn't there, between a news piece that's been cranked out in five minutes flat, where really the only important thing is the headline. And sometimes you read the article and think, I didn't need to bother. So there's a big difference between that and an article which has taken weeks or months of research and uh, it's probably quite long and in-depth. And I find myself, especially when it's on a computer screen, starting to read it in the same way that I would read the really quick 
throwaway news article. I definitely do that scanning pattern that you're talking about. And I find it extremely hard to switch that off and actually commit to it in the way that I would with a book. I think because you get into that mindset of I'm going to absorb some information quickly rather than enjoying the reading experience. One thing that I'm going to talk about in the future again, no doubt, is this year I've been trying to read The New Yorker every week. And The New Yorker is one of those magazines that contains, you know, high quality feature articles. They're not, it doesn't have sort of clickbaity news in it. I read it digitally, but as a digital replica of the printed copy. So it's in columns down the page. And I put some time aside where I'm like, I'm now going to read The New Yorker. Although I will, I do skip articles in this because (laughs) you can't read all of it. You can't read all of it. But I sit down and I spend some time doing that. Now, yesterday, I got halfway through it and went and did some other stuff. On Twitter, I saw a link to an article in The New Yorker that I hadn't got to yet in that week's issue. And I clicked on the link and started reading it online and instantly realised I was skipping and scanning and not reading it properly. And I abandoned reading it on the website and went back to my digital replica on my iPad. And I just read it in a completely different way. It was like it was a different article. That's really interesting. I think too, I'd be curious about the different retention levels in those kinds of reading. I don't think I have the world's best memory anyway. This is another point let's come back to on good and bad reading, but reading articles, I can often get through like a news reading session and then think, what have I read? You know, five minutes later, I wouldn't be able to tell you the substance of what I had read, which is kind of like, what's the point if it's something you're making yourself do because you feel like you need to be informed and all you can remember or misremember is a sound bite or maybe half of a fact. <laughs> it's a terrifying thought, isn't it? All of the probably millions of words I've read of my life and have just disappeared. This is a sort of like homeopathic remnant, like a memory <laughs> of the word in my head somewhere. You just need like the code to trigger you and suddenly it will all come gashing when in. When I find myself battling through one of those books that I hate, desperate to get to that final page so I can put it down, sometimes I, I then completely forget that I've read them. And at times I've then seen them recommended again and gone back to them again and started reading them and got to about page 20 and thought... I've read this before. I don't remember a word of it, but I think I'm not reading it again. I've already read it. I can't remember it at all. Well, thank God for that. You let yourself off the hook the second time round. Yes. (laughs) I only have to read it once. That's the rule. When I'm not working in software development, another thing that I do is I'm a writer for an online magazine called One Zero that does tech articles, technology, and the future. They publish on Medium. I find when I browse on Medium, there are two sorts of articles that catch my attention. There's... The ones where I'm like, oh, this is going to be a really interesting read. And I go into it and I sort of learn something. And then there's the clickbait titles that I do fall for sometimes. Where it says like, oh, 10 ways that you can get better at reading. And I think, oh, I'll I'll read that. I'm not really interested in how well it's written or how well it's put together. But I'm going to go into this and try and gut it and extract those 10 ways. And one of them might have something useful for me. And I'll skim it and skim the headlines of what those 10 ways are like keep a notebook and of course not, they're never any good like the, I read the, I skim those 10 ways and they don't help me get better at reading and I uh, close the tab disappointedly and feel like I've you know it's the sort of reading equivalent of eating a McDonald's doesn't it you don't feel sated at yeah, all yeah or it actually feels to me a bit like playing one of those phone games any of the kind of swipe ones that I periodically find myself getting addicted to 
<laughs> um, because it has that same thing that you go to it thinking, I'm going to get something really concise and satisfying here. And part of your brain thinks that, the other part knows that you won't, but you can't help yourself because... Because you might. You might, and there's such a, a potential pleasure in, like, setting that high score of actually taking a taking something away from them. I mean, usually they're written to promote something, and so often either they're giving you everything unusual or they're withholding the actual meat of what you need to do. Or just reducing down something that's complex and takes a lot of work <laughs> to a series of steps. This is not writing to communicate information. This is writing with an agenda. This is writing that's trying to get you to buy something. Or writing that is trying to get you to click on it so that um, a third party can present an ad to you. And they can earn a millionth of a penny for that for the second that you click on it. I mean, Medium has the thing that the writers are paid by time spent reading. So they're trying to just capture that small amount of your attention as you go through it. But of course, the irony of that is that I spend far longer reading properly and going through every line than I do doing this F-shaped scanning to try and extract information. Yeah, even now, I feel like there's a slight buzz just thinking about one of those articles. And maybe buzz is right because BuzzFeed is so expert at this. But the thought of like five steps to improve your mental health to declutter your wardrobe, to make you a better reader. Oh, there's something really Moorish about that. They promise, don't they, this a small number of tangible things you can do to achieve an intangible goal. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> They're also, I think, maybe written by optimists. And there's something really, like, appealing in spending even a brief moment in the company of an optimist before your pessimistic self goes... Yeah, well, that, that's not worth my time. That's not going to work. <laughs> there was a chap who'd written loads of these sorts of articles. He'd actually managed to do them quite well, I found, because what he did is mix nuggets of research and facts into them as well. And he made a book of them. I think it was called Barking Up the Wrong Tree. And he was called Eric Barker, which <laughs> I guess is a pun, maybe? Maybe it's a coincidence. So I, I came across him on the internet and then got his book based off the back of them. And they're all things like four rituals to keep you happy, three secrets to have an awesome life, six things most productive people do every day. They've all got that clickbaity hook. But what he did, he'd actually clearly done quite a lot of research behind the scenes to them. And he'd got extracts from other sort of writers and thinkers that he pulled into them as well. So he actually did sort of bring together a load of research. That in itself was interesting before you even got to the sometimes disappointing suggestions of what to do, but often the suggestions genuinely were quite good. So it's a really interesting point, and maybe at this point I should say that in my day job, I work as a commissioning editor for a non-fiction publisher, and I do come across a lot in my reading for work, authors who bring in loads of different references from the world of psychology and business. They support their arguments with lots of research, and uh, occasionally you get authors who are popular writers who aren't academics themselves and they're not based in the fields that they're referencing and you actually find that what they're referencing is a TED talk rather than the original research or they're referencing, and this was a really big problem, uh, the social psychology as a field had this replication scandal a few years ago. As with any science, uh, social psychologists conduct experiments, they publish their research, the field moves on. 
But what you want is for that research to be replicated, right? You want other teams in different universities to conduct the same test and get the same results. And in social psychology, that wasn't happening or the replications were being faked. A few people, very prominent people, got burned by this or were even doing it deliberately and it cast a huge shadow over a lot of that research. But the problem is in in trade publishing, publishing for non-academic readers, a lot of that discredited research still is used as the backbone of some of these arguments. So that's something that my professional experiences made me really cagey about as a reader, making sure that I take any research and call to experts with a pinch of salt, unless they're, you know, really relying on one area and it's clear that it's an area of of deep research and expertise. But it's actually more perhaps even than just research, it's those sort of truisms that you catch in books. Because you you told me one the other day, I think, about, because you've been reading a book about witches, Mm, I think? Yeah, this idea that midwives were uh, persecuted more than other women, more than other people as witches during the witch trials in Europe in um, the 16th century? You know, sometime quite a while ago. (laughs) And I happened to find this great history podcast called Dig, and they had an episode about exactly this topic. And it was fascinating because it was how the women's liberation movement in the 70s had popularised that connection between witches and the persecution of midwives in talking about a very real and important issue of how medicine was separate from women and kind of there was this big alienation of women from their own bodies. But yeah, it's one of those things that seems really likely to be true that midwives would be particularly persecuted because they provided relief for women, you know, helped them to have less painful childbirth and how the church was very anti that because of it went against the idea that women should suffer for original sin. And that actually the the evidence to back that up is super slim and it's probably not right, but it caught on because it just seems so plausible like of course i mean that's exactly the way our world works (laughs) and i think that happens with a lot of research if it sounds right or conversely if it sounds like really like oh that's not what i would expect either or tend to catch on and it's really hard to uh, unpick them if it catches you with its narrative flow it gets you as well and i think that was one thing that malcolm gladwell was caught out on a few times i think he sort of popularised that myth about broken windows policing, how it stopped all these crimes happening, and actually it didn't make any difference at all now. We know that was, you know, actually it was a really bad thing, yeah. um, resulting in lots of profiling and really harsh sentences to people who had done very little wrong. But he told it in such a nice way that everyone believed it. Yeah, and that's there's such a huge responsibility there, because especially in a book, you know, you can't print a retraction that everyone's going to read. At best, you change the book for the next print run, but all of the people who have read the first one, that becomes their truth. So there's a really big responsibility that... Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm choosing my words carefully here. There's a, a big responsibility that I perhaps ought to be recognised as such. It's really tough because you've... And this is always why fact-checkers were such a big thing, or you, in quality journalism at the very least... Because you've essentially got to check all these things that you take for granted. Like you were talking earlier on about like social science and psychology experiments. The one I read the other day was the 
Is it the Milgram experiment mm-hmm. where the half the people being experimented on were told they're prison guards and half of them were told they're prisoners? And the prison guards started getting really violent and power to the head. Yeah. Apparently it's not that's not true at all. That didn't happen. <laughs> but it's quoted so much that you, you recognise when I talk about it, probably most people listening to this will will have read that at some point somewhere. Yeah, it's in all intro psych textbooks. Mm. It's so common it's a cliche to mention it. And yet it can't be replicated. They've tried to do it dozens of times since and it doesn't happen. A lot of the, the old studies too, the ethics of how they were set up how participants were treated is super questionable and mercifully wouldn't happen now, but makes it extra difficult to actually try and replicate those results if you don't want to replicate the dodgy conditions in which they were carried out. About half an hour ago now, I said I was going to ask you a question and I forgot to ask it. (laughs) So I'm going to to ask it now because it's just come back to me. We were talking about what counted as reading and I had another one. Oh, okay, go on. Which is audiobooks. Oh, yeah. People get real bees in their bonnets about this. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, I, you know, I guess I can understand why, because you've been taught to read in a certain way, and I suppose it depends on whether you're thinking about the material from the writer, creator's point of view, or whether you're thinking about it from the reader, consumer's point of view. And maybe part of the problem, too, is that we've created this real value judgment distinction between TV and books, where TV equals bad and books equals good, just based on historical prejudices. And so audiobooks, to a lot of people, feel slippery because they're in that in-between space. And there's no doubt it's a different type of experience. I personally don't enjoy it as much even though I love listening to podcasts and the radio but I think it comes down to the pacing and the sense of control and that probably when I read I do it at a really variable speed depending on the complexity of the paragraph if you know if it is non-fiction and you've got say some paragraph that's actually quite easy to read and then you might have something with a really dense idea in it or it's something that's more narrative and there's like a really heavy emotional section or something that's like full of description. You want to spend more time with those paragraphs or even sometimes just like pause and think about it, <laughs> pause and visualize it, which for me makes the audiobook experience a bit harder because having to literally kind of pause and fiddle and then looking at my phone, which is a distraction. And I also do end up like walking around or doing something else and then I miss sections and it's harder to flick backwards. But yeah, it's definitely reading. You're following following somebody's words in the same way. Well, somebody has constructed those sentences, haven't they? They're just delivering them to you orally rather than visually. Yeah, I mean, if you have it on in the background, then it's not reading, is it? <laughs> you still, you need to have an active engagement with it. When I, I used to work in radio... We used to talk about lean forward and lean backward listening. And a lot of radio is lean backward listening. You put it on in the background and it's there. If you miss a bit, it doesn't really matter. Um, And I used to work in a department that made radio dramas, which really are lean forward listening. You've got to engage them all the way through. If you miss a bit, you kind of miss the story. For that reason, they are more of an acquired taste and they never really are as popular, I suppose, as more casual listening, you know. A lot of radio is music piped into places or just put on in the background. And radio dramas require some level of engagement from you. 
but I feel like writing, and maybe this is another one of those distinctions actually, like the skimming and the scanning, maybe reading, at least in the sense of what we're talking about here, is there something yeah. where you lean into it a little bit well, more? Well, that's, that's an interesting point. And another kind of reading that just came into my mind is subtitles and movies. Oh, yeah. How do you feel about that? So I, um, years ago, uh, studied Spanish and used to be okay at speaking it, but I've it has slipped. I don't know any Spanish speakers at the moment, so I almost never use it. And I recently thought I'm going to try and get it back. And the primary way that I'm doing this is watching Spanish language shows on Netflix with the subtitles switched on, but in Spanish, so that I'm not just allowing myself the easy way out. I'm really actively engaging with the language, but with a slight assist of it's easier to read than to catch different accents at speed. And that definitely feels like reading. It's a very different, much more active watching experience. So what do you think about that? If you were to say to me, do I consider Shakespeare reading? Reading Shakespeare, I'd say definitely. Mm. And then do you consider reading a screenplay or a script reading? I would say yes to that. All you're really doing when you're watching TV is you're watching performed the words that have been written and someone is speaking them, which is in a sense is not very different to an audiobook, except there's also accompanying visuals with them. So I'm inclined to group together a load of sort of creative arts into one bucket. I perhaps don't consider watching a scripted drama reading but I think it is reading adjacent. <laughs> reading adjacent. It's <laughs> lean-in engagement. Yes. There's a written element to watching TV, or a reading yeah. element to watching TV, I think. I think the example you gave there of subtitles, even more so, when you're watching a foreign language film, possibly one where you don't speak the language and you're reading the subtitles, on the spectrum of <laughs> uh, not reading to reading, that's closer than, than uh, watching a drama. And I also think that watching a film that is scripted is closer to reading than watching a chat show, which is not scripted. Yeah, there is definitely a category distinction between a chat show or a game show where you could play a game on your phone, do something else at the same time, and if you miss little bits of it, then not a problem, versus something which demands your attention. There's also, actually, just thinking about this, uh, reading foreign language subtitles, it feels like there's even a different kind of engagement. It's sort of more the experience that I have. Ha, have. I don't actually read poetry at the moment, but I was <laughs> going to say it feels a bit more like the experience of reading poetry, where I'm really paying attention to how the words are strung together because I'm interested in what they say about how the language is used. I'm interested in turns of phrase that are colloquial that I might not have learned, or if it's from a different country or a dialect from the kind of Spanish that I learned. And so I'm really parsing it word by word and how they relate to each other. And that's much more like what you do when you're reading poetry and you're trying to figure out why these particular images have been chosen and put together. And it sounds like it's giving a lot of credit, but that's... That's what's interesting about, you know, we would definitely, I think most people say reading poetry makes you a very good reader, whereas uh, watching uh, melodramatic <laughs> drama. Watching a Spanish soap <laughs> opera. On the high seas. <laughs> a Spanish soap opera. Yeah. Uh, most people would probably, you know, categorize that pretty low down, but actually the experience, I, I think, is 
um, very comparable. Reading poetry is definitely one vector that I am a bad reader in. I, <laughs> I've tried a few times now to read the poetry in the New Yorker, because that is one of the few places that still publishes poetry. There's a couple of poems in each issue. I've not been able to read poetry since university, actually. So I did English at university, um, as did you. Yeah, so you and I did English together, and I think that we, like most of our um, comrades, perhaps most people who study English, I don't know if it can go that far, kind of fell a bit out of love with it or just needed a break afterwards. For some people, the loss (laughs) was like a sliding scale of loss. Um, In my case, I stopped writing. I used to do a lot of creative writing. I used to write poetry and stories, and that completely disappeared. But I also really loved at uni reading poetry. And that's, I haven't done in, I was going to say 10 years, but it's been longer than that (laughs) since we left uni. But I think part of that definitely comes into an ocean of good and bad reading that I do still retain. Because I remember doing it at a high level. And I feel it's almost like having been, not to oversell it, but bear with me. It's a bit like having been an athlete and being really good at something and being able to do it well such you you take a great pleasure from that. And then you get an injury, you take some time off and you just don't have the same ability. And so I feel that way with poetry and I can't quite get past that sadness at my own inability to read in the way that I want to read. You need a literary physiotherapist to uh, sit there and and drill sonnets into you. (laughs) I mean, it's ridiculous, isn't it? It's too much pressure, but it's knowing. I think with poetry, there's often so much buried in layers and knowing that it exists and I can't find it is, yeah, it hurts. If reading an article on the internet is skimming it very quickly and reading is reading line by line, Poetry is sort of the next level up from that, where it's it's reading line by line and actually reading the same line over and over again sometimes to extract all the meaning from it. Yeah, I'd love to know the eye patterns of the average person reading poetry and the average um, English student reading a poem and how often you go back over the same words. You've kind of got to let it sort of simmer in your head for a while as well. It's not even just the eye pattern. I'm sure it is very different on poetry. There's also the, the amount of mental work you have to put in to process it all. And actually, I mean, I suppose there's maybe a bit of like lumping poetry together there. And there's some that's great because it's super immediate and accessible. And the thing that comes to mind actually is um, the Bristol poet Vanessa Kisule. After the statue of Edward Colston came down, she wrote this poem in response. And there's a video of her that she put up on her Twitter reading the poem. And... Uh, so really powerful experience watching that hearing her read and understanding it all and it's funny because you know uh, someone reading it 50 years later would would not be able to get it as quickly because they would have to look into who was Edward Colston what was this event why or you know it would just it would take a lot longer to parse and so it was a it was an interesting reminder that yeah, we, we tend to think of like maybe poetry with a capital P, <laughs> not engaging with what's being written now as something that actually can be more immediate. That's another thing where I think since university, I've 
allowed myself to become a worse reader, judgment on myself again there, but of focusing on contemporary works a lot. Like I very rarely now read books that are, are more than 20 years old. And actually I've started to struggle sometimes. I mean, some of this is perhaps sociopolitical maybe, or cultural, but when I pick up books now that I liked even 10 years ago, um, and some of the great works, the so-called great works, sort of John Updike or Philip Roth or even Martin Amos, actually, and look at those books from the 80s, their politics, particularly their sexual politics, often makes me squirm and feel uncomfortable. I think in the past I could overlook that in some way. I seem to be like, oh, this topic is distasteful or I have some issues with this topic, but this is a work of art and I can engage with it anyway. Whereas now I often find myself thinking, no, I can't. I can't get into this. I just can't. No, I don't know if that makes me a a good reader or a bad reader, actually. (laughs) That very much depends on... um... Yeah, what your Twitter bubble is like, isn't it? <laughs> Whether you're, you know, a snowflake or or not. <laughs> That's probably we were just so very used to giving people a lot of leeway. It was the status quo. And now I think it's a really nice thing that, that it's hard to read those books, um, that it's so noticeable, so noticeably awful or awkward. Now, funnily enough, I have been going back to old books a lot recently, and I think maybe this happens in times of stress, and perhaps too in lockdown, because life has really slowed down in many respects. I haven't been going out, obviously, so much, and have been finding new routines. I've never really found myself to be a a very routine-based person, or at least I didn't consider myself that way and in lockdown that's changed and I've been going out for morning walks and you know getting into really kind of slow hobbies and so reading particularly like the female writers of the mid 20th century there's a nice resonance with the kind of mood of the moment while also being obviously quite different in some ways but uh, there's something quite pleasurable about reading them now, even though um, some of their gender politics also uh, cause uh, uh, an occasional, yeah, awkward moment (laughs) that I try to get around. I'm reading a book at the moment by the improbably named Verlin Klinkenborg. (laughs) It's called Several Short Sentences About Writing. It's a book really about writing sentences, I suppose. He spends a long time sort of discussing the craft of individual sentences. Maybe maybe because I'm reading it right now while we're talking about this, but maybe it's infected how I think about writing a little bit and how and what I'm classifying as writing and not writing, or reading and not reading, I suppose. It has this idea that writing, at least good writing, is about crafting, carefully crafting individual sentences that convey something and can only be in that set of words that they're in. They couldn't be different. If they were different, it would be a worse sentence. And the writer has gone through and taken time to experiment with lots of ways of putting those words together and has come up with this one, which is the, you know, the most lyrical, the most rhythmic, the most meaningful, the most, the most able to convey an emotion or a feeling or imply things as well. When you think about words that have been crafted together 
spending time reading those feels more valuable than reading my emails. <laughs> so back to this sort of transactional yeah. idea again. I think that's an interesting point, and I kind of instinctively feel like I take the opposite view. And this probably comes down to the day job, but I definitely see a lot of authors who, because of perfectionism, they rewrite material that doesn't need rewriting. And so I often am in the privileged position of being able to see those several different versions of the same sentence. And sometimes people really do lock it down, or obviously it's my job to help them do that. Um, and often when I intervene, it's really to try and go for simplicity, uh, to strip down. And I'm maybe inferring um, that Klinkenborg has a, a similar view in his short sentences, but um, there are certainly other moments where I think this sentence is no better or worse than the one it replaced. It's just another way of getting that information across. But there's definitely a difference between that, and maybe that's the majority of a lot of books, and a paragraph uh, where the sentences just work. And those are the ones you remember, because the image just comes through, the emotion just hits you in the exact right way. I don't think, for the vast, vast majority of writers, you can get a book absolutely full of that, but it's a joy in any book to find those moments where the sentence has just found its, its perfect expression. One of the things I've started to wonder is whether those perfect books where all their sentences are beautifully crafted together and just work, whether those books are objectively like that, or whether that is something that happens between me and very particular books. Like, the books that I think are perfect will be very different from the books that you or Klinkenborg yeah. will think are very perfect. And actually, maybe it's not the book that is perfect. Maybe it's the relationship between me and that particular book, or you and you and that particular book yeah, that is perfect. that's a really interesting point, and um, I certainly don't want to sound as though um, I was doing down... On, on writers there, but I think it's something that I bear in mind in my job, as well as as a reader, you, you know, your own view of what's going to make something perfect isn't going to connect with all readers. Even something that the author has written that they don't necessarily think, like they might think, oh, I'm not sure about that, but it really finds connection with some readers. And often you get people saying that they've read their reviews online and that people have pulled out completely random things from their book that they just didn't, you know, it wasn't the focus for them. It makes you think that maybe maybe it's not the reads that are bad after all, it's only the readers that are bad. I'm <laughs> <laughs> coming full circle there. <laughs> so I instinctively, um, not instinctively, I felt as soon as you mentioned this, uh, several short sentences about writing. So I, my first thought was like, distill that down into um, three takeaways for me. <laughs> <laughs> three ways you can write better sentences. <laughs> well, so th this is the interesting thing though about this and about memory when it comes to writing is, I'm really enjoying it. It's a beautiful book and it's beautifully put together. But what I'm actually going to take away from it at the end is is very little. I'm going to remember the experience of reading it, and I'm going to remember the pleasure I took, but there's probably only two or three actual concrete things I'm going to remember from it. One of which was, he has this idea when you're writing sentences, to look at each one in isolation, and he suggests 
putting a line break after each sentence when you're writing them, because then you can see the relative lengths of them and then putting them all together at the end. Is he talking about a particular kind of writing? Uh, does he focus in on fiction? or? I think he is talking more about the sort of lean-in feature writing. I think he might work at a magazine somewhere. I think he might be an editor at a magazine. But he's got this sort of idea about sentences implying more or being more than some of their parts that you can read sentences and get a feeling and they can suggest things that happen between the sentences as well. I definitely find that what I like is giving the reader just as much as they need and no more. Sentences that keep reminding you of something or keep over explaining something are such a bore to read or they make you feel, they sort of sever your connection to the author because you think, yeah, I, I know that, and you kind of maybe get slightly annoyed with them. And in fact, he makes this point several times that you can assume a lot of your readers. Mm-hmm. He spends a while unpicking received wisdom. Um, he says, like, you know, you don't need your first sentence to grab the reader straight away. <laughs> you need it to be a good sentence. It doesn't need to have all this drama in it. And he sort of takes apart the sort of upturned pyramid style of writing that news articles use, or the, you know, assume your your reader is a complete idiot and knows nothing, which probably works for reading of the type that we're perhaps talking about here as good reading. That probably wouldn't be ideal for a clickbaity, very, you know, throwaway piece or a piece that you might scan. I don't think you could read his book in an F-shaped pattern, put it that way. (laughs) Um, Coming back to the about memory, what you'll remember from the books, uh, from this book. What do you think about memory in relation to being a good or a bad reader? Do you have, like, are you one of those people who can remember lines from Shakespeare and quote them back at people? I was thinking this the other day, actually. There is only one thing that I can quote at all, (laughs) which is the uh, opening narration to Jeff Wayne's 1978 version of War of the Worlds. Richard Burton's intro <laughs> is the only thing in the entirety of Eng- the canon of English literature that I can quote. Go on, then. No one would have believed in the last years of the 19th century that human affairs were being watched from the timeless worlds of space. <laughs> Why do you think that stayed in your mind? Well, the funny thing is, of course, that War of the Worlds is a book, mm. but Jeff Wayne's version actually isn't the intro to the book. It's an, it's an edited and precede version. Which, for my money, is actually better than H.G. Wells' original. His one, he takes all the best lines and sort of condenses them together. Mm. But anyway, to your question, I have no idea why this has stuck with me. Um, I've only ever heard it recorded. I've only I've listened to <laughs> Jeff Wayne's 1978 musical version of War of the Worlds a lot of times. <laughs> it may be my favourite cultural artefact of all time. So... <laughs> The sort of, I kind of think that humanity peaked in its artistic endeavour when it made that, and it's just been downhill ever since. I have never listened. So, <gasps> yeah, I know. I'm in for a treat, evidently. Just before lockdown, I went around Jeff Wayne's 1978 musical version of War of the Worlds, The Experience. They've got this sort of old warehouse in London, and they've got a series of rooms in it, and in each room are actors. What? Acting out the sequence, and you go around in a group, and they play the music to this over the top of it, and they have sort of special effects. A bit like secret cinema, I suppose, something like that. It's, it's incredibly well done, I think. Mm. If you go along with it, because the actors are all, yeah. you know, they're hamming it up. It's almost like a roller coaster at times. Like there's one bit where they give you a, uh, a VR headset to put on, 
and you climb into these boats and the boats start moving. Wow. With the headset on, as you look around, you can see the water around you and the aliens attacking you. And <laughs> clearly one of the actors has got a water pistol and is squirting you all with a water pistol. So it feels <laughs> the water coming out. <laughs> but it feels like there's water smashing out from the boat. Yeah, it's um, if you like the music, which you won't because you don't, you don't know it. But you would like it if you knew it. Back to your question, though. Can you... Do you have a memory of quotes and around? Can you quote those? Um, so I have a really bad memory, um, I think. I don't, it's, it's hard to know. There are some things that I have that really stay with me, but kind of names of writers, names of people generally that I know, fine. Names of writers of books. Sometimes I do that thing that you mentioned of forgetting that I've read a book entirely even ones i've got one on my shelf for instance called butterfield eight which i have read and i remember enjoying but it took me a good two chapters or so of rereading to realize that i had just it was sort of enjoyable but not memorable maybe and in terms of actual quotations it's not really the way that my mind seems to work although having said that put on the princess bride and i will quote the whole way through or clueless i can quote along i wouldn't be able to quote unless it was happening but given the cues i would be entirely there so yeah definitely with films and i suppose that comes down to re-watching so i need a certain amount of exposure which in most cases with books unless they're kind of famous opening lines you know Last night I dreamed I went to Mandalay again. I know that one, even though, as it happens, I'm now reading Rebecca, but I'm reading it for the first time. But I still know that opening line because it's so often used. So, yeah, I think they tend to, my memory tends to come through better when there's been some kind of connection. Like, I was briefly in a, a book club and we read To Android's Dream of Electric Sheep. And I've got a pretty good memory of that book, in part because it's obviously it was the basis for the film Blade Runner, but because we had a great discussion of it. And so I have these cues that are outside of the book itself that help me to remember. Don't quiz me on what happens in it, though. I'm <laughs> 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 not ready to be tested. <laughs> Shakespeare's plays, I'm very bad at remembering who's in which play, other than the ones that... Sometimes at school we occasionally did, we did a version of Midsummer Night's Dream, so I can remember Hermia and Lysander and all the characters in that. But even ones I've studied, I forget the characters' names and they merge into one. Yeah, there's definitely, I, with my partner Ben's mum, was having a conversation and we were trying to figure out which we were, I think we had two plays in mind and we were trying to figure out which one was which name or which plot points fit into which story which I mean in, in Shakespeare's case with his comedies I think it's actually pretty difficult the two <laughs> twins get confused with each other it could it could be any of them yes it was it was that one Twelfth Night isn't it um Twelfth Night was one well, of comedy them. of errors that happens as well doesn't it yeah and then you know there are loads where they end up in the forest and <laughs> confused identities <laughs> um, but my favorite was uh we were talking about emma uh, this is uh my partner's mum again and to me and various different adaptations because this year i watched the fantastic new version of emma with anya taylor joy directed by autumn de wilde and it's fascinating the i think her first feature film she 
directed a lot of music videos before this, but it is now my favourite adaptation of Emma. I think it's so much... And I like them all. And obviously, we mentioned Clueless. It's one of my all-time favourite films. And maybe, actually, this Emma isn't better than that. Jury's out. But it's so... The characters are, are a lot more kind of sensual and human and grubby. You feel everything much more. Uh, but anyway, we were talking about one of the BBC adaptations that she had recently rewatched. And she was super annoyed by how they had edited the story. And I was like, oh, um, I remember it being quite faithful to the book, actually. And she said, no, they completely um, got rid of the, you know, the best friend character who marries the clergyman. And I paused and I thought, that happens in Pride and Prejudice. (laughs) 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 But she had gotten so frustrated with this film because it didn't have this pivotal plot point for her, which didn't happen in in Emma (laughs) at all. But it's entirely plausible. There are lots of, you know, odious yeah. clergymen in Jane yeah, Austen's yeah. books. <laughs> There's an interesting thing there, isn't it, about the a writer's work. Often you could imagine all of those, even when they don't exist in the same fictional universe, you can sort of imagine them as if they did, and then they all sort of merge together into one. Yeah. I think sometimes you can definitely get the sense that an author in different novels is kind of trying to write their way to the best expression of a certain character yeah. or critique. Or idea. And with Shakespeare, you see that in certain plots or... So I think three or four goes at the same thing. Yeah, and often the one that people like the best is where they've just... (laughs) It's the culmination of all of those attempts. We've talked a lot here, really, I suppose, about the ways that we read and that sort of what it's like being a reader, which is what we really after on, on this podcast, is why we started it, actually, is to talk about the experience of reading rather than doing... A series of reviews of particular books, although obviously we talk about books. So uh, if anyone has tuned into this expecting, with the title Bad Reads, it to be a snarky attack on books, uh, I'm afraid you're going to be disappointed. Um, which <laughs> I always think the first episode of a podcast is a great time to say the title's really bad. <laughs> it's a great time to say, you're going to be really disappointed with this podcast. <laughs> I'd like to say, there will be plenty of snarks. Yes. Um, and plenty of us probably um, trashing on the books that we're not enjoying, but not from the point of view, I guess that's it, we're not sitting up on our high pedestals judging these books to be bad. Um, if, if we trash something, it's because, it, yeah, it's because it's on us, yeah. right? It's just not the right time for us. We didn't make the connection with it. I think a lot of reviews try and position themselves as objective, but the only reviews you enjoyed reading are the ones that speak to your sensibilities. So it's just kind of a, a facade of objectivity. <laughs> and we're just ditching that. We're getting rid of that. There are no bad books. <laughs> just Actually, there are bad books. <laughs> but we're not going to be talking about that. A friend of mine told me this story ages ago. Of when he was little, he would go and get a drink of water from the tap. And he would drink it. And some days the water would be extra delicious. And he would drink the water and he would call to his brother and he'd say, quick, it's a good water day. <laughs> and they'd both run to the tap and they'd drink the water. And it was only years later that he realised 
the water was always the same, but some days they'd eaten really salty food. And so the water on that day was particularly delicious because they really, it really <laughs> quenched their thirst. And I've thought about that story a lot since he told it to me. And I can't help thinking that books are the same. Like you think, I, I say to someone, oh, this book's really, really good. And then they read it and like, yeah, it was fine. Mm-hmm. And it was... It was it was between me and the book. I, you yeah. know, it wasn't it wasn't it wasn't a good water day. It was it was I needed that right then. I love that. I'm gonna bear that in mind in my reading. The water was really good today. <laughs> right. I think that's probably all we have time for today. I'm gonna go back and finish off my uh, several short sentences about writing. I am gonna. Well, see, this is it. I was about to say, I'm going to go back to my Rebecca, but that's not true. I'm probably going to go and watch some TV (laughs) just to compound uh, my opening this show with me being a bad reader. You're going to be uh, (laughs) lawless chaotic. I'm going to be, I'm going to be evil, evil neutral, (laughs) evil chaotic (laughs) and leave them all to a side for tonight. That's all we have time for today. Join us next time when we'll be talking about how we find books to read. You can subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and you can find out more at badreads.co.uk.